New scores are out on the MCAS, the standardized test given to Massachusetts public school students, and they aren't a particularly pretty picture. Results of the test given last spring, at the end of the first full year back at in-person learning, show that students are still scoring below the levels seen on the 2019 test, the last one given before COVID hit. So what should we take away from the new results? And for that matter, what should we take away from the annual MCAS scores in general? I'm Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine, and that's our focus this week on the podcast. Here to help us do that are two smart voices in the Massachusetts edusphere. Mary Tamer is a former member of the Boston School Committee who now serves as the Massachusetts State Director of Democrats for Education Reform. Welcome, Mary. Thank you, Michael. And Jack Schneider is an associate professor of education at the University of Massachusetts Lowell and a co-founder of the Massachusetts Consortium for Innovative Education Assessment and founder of the Education Commonwealth Project. Good to have you here, Jack. Good to be here. And Jack, I was going to say you're also the host of a very popular education podcast, but we're not really here to plug the competition, (laughs) though I think I just did. Um, So, um, Mary, so the new scores had a few slivers of good news, but generally showed that the pandemic is still exacting a big toll on student learning. Uh, You put out a statement uh, saying the results should serve as a wake-up call. Uh, What did you mean by that, and what was your big takeaway? Yeah, no, I think I'm really glad that we're talking about this today, Michael, because I think what we are seeing is very concerning. I think what we've continued to see over these last you know, um, few years of students and school communities being in a pandemic and, and what that the toll that that's taken um, on the entire school community. So that is staff and students combined. But I think when we look at these MCAS results, um, it's deeply concerning to me. And I think it continues to illustrate that you know Massachusetts is a state that likes to rest on its laurels in terms of being number one, but we know that we're only number one for some. And so when we look at the results of our black and brown students, of our students with disabilities and our English learners, I think that it's very clear that we're in a crisis. I mean, I just was looking at some of the data today. And for example, in the Boston public schools, only seven students in the eighth grade who are identified as English learners past MCAS, seven students, that's 1%. Um, If that's not a crisis, I don't know what is. Uh, It is pretty jarring. I mean, so Jack, it's sort of, it's it's sort of hard to argue with the, the fact that the pandemic was extremely disruptive, and it hardly seems like a surprise that it's affected student achievement. Um, But uh, you co-authored a piece on our website uh, after the scores came out with the superintendent of the Lowell Schools. And and I think you you and and your co-author, Joel Boyd, sort of said that this year's results should also serve as sort of a wake up call, but I but of a maybe of a different of a different sort or with a different message. Well, I think, as many people know, MCAS scores are used by the state to hold schools accountable and That would make a lot of sense if schools were the primary determinant in student MCAS scores. They're not. Uh, Out-of-school variables are. And what Mary was just referring to is actually great evidence of that. It's really disturbing, right? And, And I agree with her that this is a crisis, right? That our young people have gone through, uh, you know, two and a half years 
of really disrupted learning that we as a society ought to be really concerned about. But we know why the scores are down, right? It did not come as a surprise to anyone that the scores were down. And it's not because their schools got demonstrably worse, right? It's because for many of these young people, their out of school conditions were playing a much larger role in their lives. And we can see that some students actually did not suffer a dip in their MCAS scores. And to me, what this serves as is a perfect example of why we ought to look at MCAS scores and other data points in order to figure out, well, where do we need to channel more resources? But we should not use them in a high stakes capacity for rendering judgments about schools, because that's really not what they're telling us, right? They're telling us what young people need more support, but they're not telling us some schools are really great, some schools are really bad, let's punish the bad ones, right? That's just far too simplistic, and it ignores everything we know from educational research about these data. Uh, I mean, what do you think, Mary? Is it, uh, I mean, is it, is it too blunt an instrument? It, it certainly is a sort of diagnostic uh, tool, or it, it tells you something about uh, meaningful about where kids are at, but um, uh, what about Jack's point that, that it's one thing to measure them, but the way we're using them isn't isn't been isn't particularly productive. Well, I think that you know I've always said that you know whether it's MCAS or whether it's another standardized test, that standardized testing tells us something. It doesn't tell us everything. And so in the state of Massachusetts since 2019, our commissioner Jeff Riley has actually used multiple measures to to essentially grade a school right so we look at there's a number of factors that go into that equation including the growth so not simply about the score of of the exam itself but how much growth are students showing over a period of time and i think that's a really important factor for us to look at because you know to jack's point we do know that socioeconomics absolutely play a role in how students do across our, you know, across our country and certainly here in Massachusetts. But that being said, you know, I am the low income kid who did succeed. And I succeeded because my teachers believed in me. They saw something in me and they cultivated whatever it is that they saw at a very young age. And so given what Jack is saying, that we know that certain student groups are not performing at the same level as other student groups. So the question is, what are we doing at a time when we have more resources than we have frankly ever had before? What are we doing? What are the targeted interventions, the evidence-based practices that we are doing every single day in our classrooms to level that playing field? And that I say that from the academic standpoint, but also the mental health standpoint. We know that kids across the socioeconomic spectrum are suffering more deeply than we've ever witnessed in our lifetimes. And so we have the money to put the right interventions and the right level of supports in place. And honestly, Michael, we're not seeing that. I was out in Springfield a couple of weeks ago. Um, in Springfield, they've received $244 million in COVID relief from the federal government. They've spent less than 20% of that money and they have two years left to spend that money we know we are in a crisis now, an academic and mental health crisis. This is no time to be holding back on the use of those funds. And to be clear, it's not just Springfield where we're seeing that. Right. And um, 
again to the statement that you and 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 Democrats for Education Reform put out when that when the uh, test re- results were released, you said in that statement that the districts uh, have not been adequately responding to to what's gone on with the pandemic learning loss and the use of funds. What what should we be doing? In response, in in the and this is kind of in the shorter term, as you say, there's a big pile of money. It's not you know going to be recurring. It has to be used you know in a pretty limited uh, across a pretty limited time frame. Well, I mean, we've seen, believe it or not, even in unexpected places like Tennessee, where they are employing you know high dosage tutoring or something that looks like high dosage tutoring. You know, we have opportunities again to bring in practitioners to use folks, and even if it's like retired teachers who I know, you know, even districts like Boston will still use retired teachers, retired principals, and bring them back to do supplemental work. I mean, this, again, we have the funding and the resources to do that. Um, and same with the, on the mental health front, like we, you know, I've asked my my teacher and, and principal friends, how many more practitioners do you have in your school this year um, than you did prior to the pandemic? And oftentimes when it comes to the mental health counseling piece, we're not seeing tremendous increases in the number of folks who are being brought into schools to do that really essential work to, to help students recover from everything they've gone through these last two and a half years. And do you have a sense of this, Jack? Is is it, uh, I mean, is Mary right? As, have the districts kind of dropped the ball in terms of, uh, you know, in the, in the sort of nearer term horizon, uh, using this money that's here and trying to address uh, the, the learning loss? I would put it very differently, actually. Um, working closely with educators, uh, with district leaders, um, you know, my experience has been that these folks are doing everything they can every single day, and then you know you give them a, a whole other batch of responsibilities to deal with. Um, you know, that's not dropping the ball, right? That's that's being overwhelmed and overburdened. Uh, schools are incredibly lean organizations. We're not talking about like a consultancy firm where, you know, a third of our employees are quote unquote on the beach uh, waiting for, you know, a, a, a major client to come in and require our full capacity. Um, schools need support, districts need support in order to be able to adequately use these additional resources. I also wanna just back us up a second um, and say that while it is true that growth scores are used, uh, they are a much smaller component of the accountability system than proficiency rates are. And if you look at what's included in the accountability system, it's ELA proficiency rates, it's math proficiency rates, it's science proficiency rates, and then there are some SGP, right? That's the student growth percentile um, pieces. progress towards English proficiency if you have English language learners and um, chronic absenteeism for non-high school grades. That's it, right? So the, the, the lion's share is eaten up by proficiency rates on MCAS. And so while Mary's right, that growth is a much better way of approaching it than just looking at proficiency rates. Um, It is important to remember that proficiency rates are really what's driving accountability determinations. Um, And so, you know, the thing that I would be focusing on here is what can we do for students outside of school, right? Yes, absolutely, we should be focused all the time on 
strong educational experiences for young people. They're at school 180 days a year from approximately 8 a.m. till 3 p.m. Schools can make a big difference in people's lives. They made a big difference in mine. Sounds like they made a big difference in Mary's. But we also know that the primary determinants in young people's lives are actually out of school, right? And so I think we should all be thinking less about you know, ways in which we might, and I'm not saying Mary is doing this, but there are people who are just sitting around blaming schools for not solving poverty, blaming schools for not having remedied everything that happened to young people during the pandemic, when there are all of these opportunities for us to meet young people's needs after school, on the weekends, over the summer. And, you know, I've been really disappointed with how little has been done outside of school here in the Commonwealth, as well as across the nation. I completely agree with you, Jack. And even, for example, last summer, um, when I think about the limited number of seats that were available for students to have, you know, again, after the, the amount of disruptive learning that they've had over this period of time, the fact that even large districts like Boston were not offering an opportunity for every student who wanted one to have some kind of summer learning experience. And I thought, you know, with the summer, I'm not talking again, just about academics, because I agree, we know that some kids we reach with sports, some kids we reach with music. And so having like, you know, a number of different opportunities for, for students to partake in over the summer, even when we think about these acceleration academies that some schools are doing um, over school vacations as well, like we need to seize these moments given how much lost learning time we have seen to make up for it. So I, I am with you on that front. And I, I agree with you. I think being in a school right now is probably one of the toughest jobs out there and has been for a while. Really isn't about blaming schools, but I, I want us to think innovatively and creatively and productively about what can we do to change what we're seeing. And I think about, there are additional measures beyond the ones you mentioned in terms of how schools are assessed. One of them, for example, is student attendance. Uh, we know because um, Desi told us this this week that our average student missed three weeks of school last year, three weeks. And collectively, in the state of Massachusetts, it was like 1.7 million days of missed school for our 900,000 students in the state. Um, that's a lot of time out of school. And so we really need to think about what do we do when we see the chronic level of absenteeism, what level of outreach is being conducted for those students. And again, at a time when we have additional resources, Jack is right, we do put a lot of burdens on the classroom teacher we have an amount of money that we will never see again in our lifetime. What are we doing to supplement? So not to burden the existing teacher, but to bring in supports to do the work that we need to do to help the kids that are truly struggling in our schools. And that's what I, I think we need to see more of. And um, Jack, just talk a little bit about uh, the work that you've been doing um, on developing sort of an alternative to the MCAS system that, that you're saying is just far too narrow in what it's measuring? What, what would be a better approach? Sure, yeah. Uh, Mary said that, you know, I, I hadn't mentioned attendance, but I did, right? It, I mentioned chronic absenteeism is there, right? And, and I think what that illustrates is again, my point that we're measuring things that are telling us more about out-of-school variables than in-school variables, right? 
whether or not a student shows up at school has far more to do with what's going on at home and in a young person's neighborhood. Um, the school can do a lot to make school attractive and get a student to come there. But um, the things that we are holding schools accountable for aren't just uh, things that are you know, demographic data in disguise. They're also way too narrow. And so one of the projects that I've been working on uh, for the past five to seven years uh, has been our consortium here in the Commonwealth, the Massachusetts Consortium for Innovative Education Assessment. And one of the main goals of that is to recognize all of the things that we all want schools to do for young people and to build a measurement accountability system. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I, I am a little cautious using that word because accountability has for many people become a dirty word, but I think it can be a very positive word for all of us, but to build a new approach that recognizes that schools should be doing all kinds of things like engaging young people and giving them access to creative and performing arts and making sure that they're socially and emotionally healthy and helping them develop as citizens, right? All of these things that we all care about. And so that approach in our consortium uh, is uh, broadly referred to as our school quality measures work. And then we're also trying to build a replacement for machine scored standardized tests uh, in the form of teacher created classroom embedded performance assessments. And so we refer to that as our quality performance assessments work. So SQM and QPA, the eight districts who are in our consortium are Attleboro, Boston, Lowell, Revere, uh, Milford, uh, Wareham and Winchester. Uh, hopefully I named eight there. Uh, and we have recently expanded this work uh, with support from the state legislature to try to reach all of the districts that aren't those eight consortium districts. So that project is called the Education Commonwealth Project, and it's based at UMass Lowell. And what we are trying to do is roll out some of these tools to any public schools uh, and public school districts that are interested um, in trying to build better measures of student learning and better measures of school quality. Because I think one of the things that we can broadly agree on is that evidence matters, right? That, um, that data can be a powerful tool for school improvement. And then I think there are some of us who are more frustrated than others about the, the present measurement and accountability system, which I think is too narrow, uh, which has all kinds of unintended consequences, um, which really punches down, which exacerbates segregation. Um, but I'm not opposed to measurement and I'm not opposed to, uh, you know, the concept of accountability, particularly if it's a reciprocal accountability system where schools and districts can demonstrate like, hey, we don't have what we need in order to succeed, right? Um, and can make some demands on the state there for the additional resources that are necessary to get the kind of equal outcomes that we want for all young people. And Mary, do you think, I mean, could there be a broader system of measurement and accountability? Or, I mean, do you worry that there's a danger that, you know, you measure too many things and then you start to not be able to sort of have a focus on any one thing or that, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you would sort of say there's sort of a hierarchy, you know, which I think is the one of the critiques is that we have created a hierarchy that we've put, we certainly have put like math and English at the top of that and said, you know, this is kind of the, the holy grail. We need kids, you know, achieving in these topics and other stuff is important. And the criticism has been, though, 
you know, the kind of old adage that what gets measured is what gets done or what gets focused on. And so that, you know, schools have become these kind of, you know, testing focused, you know, you know, uh, uh, stifling environments where there's just sort of way too much focus on those narrow academic subjects. Yeah, I mean, I think we want all of our schools to be offering kids a wide range of, of, of subjects and extracurriculars for them to explore and fall in love with. I mean, there's no question about it. I think though, you know, there's a, there's a significant difference between a performance-based assessment and a standardized assessment. So you, and when it comes to, you know, looking at data across stu student groups, you just, it's not, you just can't do that with a performance-based assessment. And also it's my understanding of the MCIEA that you're also going to have multiple people. So multiple raters who are grading each and every exam. I can't even imagine what the financial implications are of a model like that for districts like Springfield and Worcester and Boston, not to mention uh, the, you know, what the collective bargaining agreement implications of that as well, if you have four or five teachers grading every single exam. And so there's lots of concerns there. And I think, again, when we look at standardized scores and, and based on what we did see come out of the state yesterday, Michael, you know, when it, I think it was third to eighth grade ELA, so our English exams, um, so 50% of white students, you know, met the mark for those exams. It's one in four black students, one in five Latino students. And so again, like, I think that the focus right now really needs to be on what is our plan to change those outcomes. We've continued to see this we see gaps growing. I know, I think there was mention that the, the gaps might've closed a little bit because in fact, even the white students in the state of Massachusetts that their scores fell this year. And so uh, that to me is not the way we wanna start closing gaps is by having students meet in the middle. We wanna bring all of our students up. And I think we also have to look at though, everything, including like, what are the percentage of students that are meeting common core standards? The state put, common core into effect, I believe it was 2007. And so this is a basically, a, you know, a list of state standards that, um, you know, for students to have some level of assurance that they will be prepared when they graduate from high school, that they will do well in their post, whatever their post-secondary choice is, whether it's career or college. We see tremendous gaps in terms of students graduating from Massachusetts high schools who are meeting those, those common core standards, those mass core standards, excuse me. And so, you know, in Boston, for example, 37% of high school graduates are meeting mass core standards. Um, Lawrence, it's 100%. Springfield, it's also 100%. But then look at a little municipality like Chicopee. In Chicopee, 79% of white students are meeting mass core standards. For Latino students, it's 49%. There's a 30 percentage point gap. So, so when we talk about the schools, and this isn't about what's happening outside of school, this comes down to what is happening inside those schools and what are Latino students being told about what courses they should be taking? I mean, the 30% gap is just inexplicable to me. And so there is no question that out of school time absolutely influences all of our lives. But when you have children for six or seven hours a day, that in fact is 
often longer than their parents are seeing them there during waking hours. And so we really need to make sure that our schools are in fact providing everything that our different student groups need in order to be successful. It is upon us and upon our schools to bring out the brilliance in all of our children. And Jack, I, I guess I do wonder, uh, I, I hear the kind of uh, the appeal of, of these different types of assessments and of broader assessments, but it does feel like at the end of the day, you want all those things too, but you do feel like there is a bit of a, uh, I don't know if it's a hierarchy, or you want kids exploring those things and doing those on a foundation of basic literacy, on a foundation of basic, you know, numeracy. I mean, I don't think it, you know, I think there is a reason why those subjects are the ones that get the focus there, you know, they're the sort of foundation. I mean, even in math, they say you need good literacy skills for it. So it's kind of the foundation for everything. So to have, you know, kind of a richer assessment of whether schools have subject matters that may engage students more or uh, other measures, uh, I, I just wonder, you know, to, to, to Mary's point about, you know, 75% of black students in the state are not at what we deem to be meeting or exceeding expectations, 80% of Latino students uh, in, in ELA. Um, I mean, shouldn't that be, there be kind of urgency and, and have that along with math be a primary focus? And, um, uh, you know, and there's a lot of you know, people criticize standardized tests. I mean, they, they seem to tell you, uh, you know, they don't tell you everything, but they give you a pretty basic picture of, of where kids are at on these fundamental skills. Sure, make it a focus, but as long as you have a narrowly tailored high stakes accountability system, you're going to have gaming. Um, people are going to be teaching to the test and narrowing the curriculum, and that's a problem. And so I, I see no problem with a system where you have multiple measures that value all the things that schools do um, and saying that some of these probably are more urgent than others right now. But if you have a narrowly tailored high stakes accountability system, we know we've got 25 years of evidence that it's not going to lead to, you know, tremendous growth in those areas and equal valuing of everything that we want. It's going to lead to gaming. We've got loads of evidence for that. And so it, it just doesn't make sense to continue to have the kind of measurement and accountability system we presently have and that we've had now for a couple of decades. Um, as for you know what I would consider to be really concerning uh, literacy and numeracy rates among racially minoritized young people, you know I, I think for me the answer is not well. Let's relentlessly focus only on those two areas because I don't know a single middle upper class white person with a college degree who sends their kid to uh, a public school here in Massachusetts who would want only that for their own kids. Um, I don't know why there are some uh, who, you know, like me, are white and middle class and highly educated who believe that black and brown children should only have that. They should have everything. They should have everything that any racially privileged kid in this Commonwealth has. Every low-income kid should have everything that every high-income kid in this Commonwealth has. And I'm not suggesting that this is Mary's position, but I am suggesting that there are people who believe that if we just get ELA and math scores up, 
for racially minoritized kids, economically marginalized kids, English language learners, uh, that somehow that is enough for them. It's not enough for them. It's not enough for my kid, right? And if it's not enough for my kid, it's not enough for all kids, which is not to say that my values should be everybody's values. But I think that, you know, there are those of us who believe that, um, that what we want for our own children, um, we should want for everyone and we shouldn't hold two separate sets of values there. Um, and, and so the question then for me is not, well, how can we ratchet up the pressure on schools to produce that? Because again, we've got decades of evidence now that that's a failed theory of change, right? Educators aren't hiding their best lessons in their desks, waiting for the moment when, uh, you know, the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education threatens them. Uh, we know that educators are working really hard. We know that schools are doing what they can and that that's not enough. And so for me, it's both about you know, Mary said, working within schools, strengthening schools, harnessing the power of innovation, things. Sure, absolutely. And that we have a research practice partnership in Lowell between UMass Lowell and the Lowell Public Schools. And we're trying to build a system of continuous improvement there. But as a society, we also need to recognize that the best cure for poverty is not going to be through the schools. Uh, it, that just simply isn't how it works. You need to address poverty directly. Um, and you need to address the fact that we have racialized poverty in this country and also continue investing in schools to make sure that every young person does have the opportunity for a high quality education because schools can make a tremendous difference. I think when, it, when we talk about what we want to ratchet up, I think what we want to ratchet up is our expectations for our students and their ability to achieve and what is required in order for us to see that happen. I went through the Boston Public Schools, as did my children. I have visited hundreds of schools across the state. I do not know of any schools that are only focusing on English and math. With that being said, do you know it is upon the district to decide what is offered in every school. Like that, that is up to the district. You know, this is not some edict coming down from the state that you only are teaching English and math all day. And in addition, I think when we talk about MCAS, it's often lost, I think, in these narratives that the questions themselves and how they are graded, like the creation of the standards is created by Massachusetts teachers. It is teachers who apparently get together every year, create the questions, create what the standard will be, um, you know, and that's based on their classroom experience. And so um, I, I really feel that, you know, I continue to hear a mantra about, you know, we, we cannot ignore poverty, but I feel that there's this, this feeling that poor children can't learn. I mean, and I, I don't necessarily know if that's what you're saying, Jack, but- That's I not even remotely that, what I'm saying. I, okay, I'm glad to hear it because, you know, we can talk about these issues, but again, what are we doing to mitigate what we know children are coming to school with and what they have continued to come to school with? You know, and I, I know what's possible because that was, that was me, that was my, you know, that was my family. And so I, I just feel that there is much more that we could be doing to support our students. And we could spend all day, I think, talking about the reasons why certain things aren't, you know, the way they should be or the way we would like them to be, but it does not uh, take away from the fact that we have a lot of students who are not 
getting what they need in order to be successful in our well-resourced schools right now. Yeah, but it's also true that two-thirds of standardized test scores for students are predicted by out-of-school variables rather than in-school variables. And so while I'm, I'm not saying poor children can't learn, what I am saying is we can't expect equal outcomes, even if we have equal schooling experiences for young people, given how disproportionately inequitable out-of-school conditions are for young people. And it's true both across economic lines and across racial lines. It's true across ethnic lines. It's true across linguistic lines. And so the idea that schools alone are going to solve inequities is, is just, it, it's fantastical thinking, right? I wish that were true, right? But the fact is that we expect these things of schools because we don't actually have good alternatives in our society for reaching young people, right? That's why we always go to the schools, because that's where the young people are. And what we need to do is build out ways that we can support young people in our society outside of school from cradle all the way through adulthood so that people show up, young people show up at school equally ready to learn at age four or age five. And so that when they come back from the summer, they are equally ready to learn at each grade level. And so that when they go home at the end of the day, they are equally ready to absorb what they're getting in school, right? There are all kinds of things we can do in school, but we can't delude ourselves in thinking that the vastly inequitable conditions within which young people live are the primary determinant of how they're performing in school, right? I'm a former classroom teacher. I know school can make a big difference. I also grew up in a low income community. School made a difference for me. Guess what? I'm an N of one and so are you, right? I've got childhood friends who have been incarcerated or murdered, right? Didn't work out for them, right? Uh, and we went to the same schools. So the point is that I think we both agree we need strong schools. We need to invest in those schools. We need to support those schools. We need to support educators. Um, but I think the point where we possibly disagree is that I am really worried that we have spent a couple decades in this country pretending that out of school factors don't matter for young people. Um, and I'm not suggesting that you are pretending that, but we do live in a country where the discourse has been about our schools failing our young people, right? That the gaps that we see in standardized test score performance are a result of um, unequal educational experiences. And, and I think that that's just, that's misguided and that has really distracted us from supporting young people in ways that we know how to. But I think, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, Jack, but I can say even from my own family experience that yes, that for me, uh, you know, I had the classroom folks who lifted me up and supported me and convinced me of what was possible. My older sister dropped out of English high school because after missing nearly a month of school and no one even picking up the phone to tell my family that that was the case, um, you know, I don't think she had one adult in that building who uh, was focused on her or was holding her up and lifting her up. So I do believe, in fact, that our schools, like that schools are the place where significant change can happen, where it does change lives. And I've seen it too many times. I've seen it in my own family. I've seen it across schools and across districts. So, uh, you know, we cannot underestimate the value of, of a 
well-run classroom and the impact that has on the children in the state. Um, it cannot be underestimated. And so I do believe, in fact, that regardless of sometimes the horrendous situations that our students might be living in, subjected to, that schools are places for transformative change. And we have to do everything we can to make sure that when we do have students under those roofs, that they are getting everything they need. Well, I, uh, if I can be so presumptuous, I think you'd probably both agree on that, on that point at least. Um, and I think we'll probably leave it there for this episode of the podcast. But I want to thank uh, you both, uh, Mary Tamer and Jack Schneider. Uh, appreciate it a lot. And thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast. We will see you again next week.